Good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm reason I always try to put Nehemiah at the end of the minor prophets. It's not. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week, we were introduced to a, a man by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew who served as the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. It is during the performance of his duties that he hears about the people of God. The people who had returned to Jerusalem at the end of the captivity, and they were in great distress. The walls of the city have not been rebuilt, and the people are being criticized and slandered by their enemies. As we looked at how Nehemiah reacted, we we noted last week some essentials for doing a good job for God. And those essentials including caring enough to get informed, caring enough to be burdened, caring enough to talk about it with God, and caring enough to get involved. As we left Nehemiah, he was praying and fasting for wisdom from the Lord. The task before Nehemiah was almost overwhelming. And the first thing he must do is to convince the king to allow him to go. That really was a rather frightening prospect. I wonder if you've ever faced a challenge or a problem or a complication so enormous and significant that you've shuddered at the thought of even tackling it. Well, that's the case with Nehemiah, and I want to share with you five principles of preparing for a difficult job. First of all, preparing for a difficult task requires patience. It says it came about, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. When we last saw Nehemiah, he was praying and weeping over the physical and spiritual condition of his homeland. And before we really can do anything for God, we really have to have a burden. So we see him praying and weeping, and then we see him praying and waiting. If you compare Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, with Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, uh, you will just that about four months have passed uh, since he began praying and waiting for an answer. So during those four months, Nehemiah must have asked God to either remove this burden from his heart or to deepen it so that he could he would never give up on asking. So true faith gives the the calmness that is necessary for us to wait on God's timing. It keeps us from rushing out and trying to do in our own strength what only God can do. You remember how that turned out for Moses. His failure to wait on God's timing caused him to kill an Egyptian, to hide him in the sand, and to run for his life. Spent 40 years on the backside of the desert, God using that time to prepare him 
to do what he had called him to do. I've thought on that at several times that what it would have been like had Moses been in the position of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt immediately without him having conquered his anger and issues. There may have been dead bodies all the way to the promised land. We do not know exactly what we need to do until we stop and wait on God. We wait and we pray. There are two scriptural admonitions I'd bring to your mind. First, there's one found in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13 directed to Moses. It says, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. <clears throat> Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has accomplished for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And then in Psalm 46 and verse 10, we read these words, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among, among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When you wait on the Lord in prayer, it is not a waste of time. It is an investment. The dates in the text tell us that four long months have passed as Nehemiah has faithfully bombarded the temple, the throne of God uh, with his prayers. Sometimes we find that when we do so, God delays his answer. But a delayed answer does not mean an unwilling God. In John chapter 11, in the story of the death of Lazarus, is a marvelous illustration of God's delays. In John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And then in verse 3, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And then if you go down to verse number 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard that he was sick... What did he do? Scripture says he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Jesus loved Lazarus, therefore he delayed. It was a delay of love. The delay was not of indifference or preoccupation. The delays of God are always delays of love and of purpose. Nehemiah's opportunity came in a most unexpected, even frightening way. So, Preparing not only requires patience, but preparing for a difficult task requires prayer. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I have never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Well, the first thing that we know, of course, is Nehemiah's fear. Nehemiah had good reason to be afraid. The king's notice of the sadness in his face temporarily struck terror into his heart because he knew 
that such an emotional display could not only cost him his job, it could cost him his life. Miraculously, though, the king did not get angry, but very uncharacteristically responded favorably by saying in verse 4, Then the king said to him, What do you request? And then the second part of verse 4 says, And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Here's Nehemiah's prayer. We noted in the first chapter that Nehemiah specifically prayed for two things. He prayed for opportunity and he prayed for favor. He prayed for an opportunity to, talk to, the, to speak to the king about this. And he prayed that God, God would give him favor with the king. Well, here's the opportunity that he has requested. This is the Lord's uh, you know, open door. Uh, for a brief moment, uh, I suspect that Nehemiah was almost like we are at times when we see an answer prayer. We're, it's shock. We don't really know what to do with such an opportunity given to us. And so <clears throat> he sought the Lord's leading. There are a couple of three things about his prayer that are obvious. First of all, it was immediate. He didn't have time uh, to say, well, I'll get back with you in three days about that. It was an immediate need. It was spontaneous. He didn't have an opportunity to stop and think and consider, although he had already done, done so. And maybe more importantly, he, his prayer had to be brief. Uh, prayers do not have to be long to be effective. In fact, some of the greatest prayers uh, that we read in the Bible were relatively short. Remember when Peter was attempting to walk on the water and he lost his focus and he began to sink, he prayed three words, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. It was an effective prayer, but it wasn't long. In fact, Jesus, in the great sermon on the mount, as he taught his disciples on the subject of prayer, said in Matthew 6, 7, but when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So preparing requires prayer. Third, preparing for a difficult task requires planning. Nehemiah had been doing a lot more over that four-month period than just praying. He had also been planning. Not only had he prayed for an opportunity, but he planned for that opportunity. That is, in itself, an exercise in faith. He was so sure that God was going to allow him to go, he even drew up an agenda in case the king asked him how much absence he would need. God honors that kind of thinking. Charles Swindoll says, I weary of people who call it faith when they can't tell you their plans. Have you ever heard an individual say, no, we're not going to think this through. We're just going out by faith. God will lead us. The presence of faith does not mean the absence of organization. The presence of faith does not mean an absence of planning. Going out by faith does not mean that you're going out in a disorderly or haphazard manner. So here is a request that in his thinking and in his planning that Nehemiah 
has brought about. First of all, he asked for the king's permission. Verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. We often <clears throat> speak about tact more than we exercise it. it. We think it is more important to speak our minds or to express our frustrations, but I want you to notice how tactfully Nehemiah replies to the king. Instead of replying to the king and referring to Jerusalem by name or even as the capital of Judah because it had a reputation as being a troubled sore spot for the emperor, he simply calls it the city where my father's tombs are or the city where my ancestors are buried. Uh, This appeals to the interest of the king. Uh, All kings wanted to leave behind a memory of themselves and of their reign. And so this appeals to the king and certainly does not bring up uh, the problems that the name Jerusalem may. And so instead of putting Artaxerxes on the defensive, he actually won him over to his side. As Dale Carnegie expressed it, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was trying not to do. If the king grew suspicious or distrustful about Nehemiah and his position, his very life could be in danger. He would not only lose his job, he could lose his head. He asked first for the king's permission. He asked secondly for the king's protection. In verse 7, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. So Nehemiah was aware of the political situation and the regions through which he would travel, the governors and other lower officials who were in service to Artaxerxes, often exercised their power in their regions pretty much as they pleased. And the letters from the king put Nehemiah's work squarely under the authority and the authorization of the king. He asked for his protection. And finally, he asked for the king's provision. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. Uh, I think we ought to notice that Nehemiah doesn't ask to take advantage of the king. Instead, he shows his honor and respect to the king by inviting him to participate in what he considers a worthy work. He knew that the king was able to provide these things. He sensed that the king's heart was willing, and so he shows the king how he can do what his willing heart wants him to do. 
It is said that Alexander the Great had famous general to whom he had given permission to draw upon the royal treasury for any amount. On one occasion, this general made a draft for such an enormous sum that the treasurer refused to honor the draft until he first consulted the emperor. Going into his presence, the treasurer reported the general's actions. The emperor asked, did you honor the draft? He said, no, I refuse till I have seen your majesty because the amount was so great. And the emperor in great indignation said, do you not know that he honors me and my kingdom by making such a large draft? We have a great God. He was honored when we call upon him to give great things to his work. The results are seen in verses 8 and 9, the second part of verse 8 and 9. The king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and the horsemen with me. So verse 8 reveals why Nehemiah was capable of such great confidence. He was sure that the hand of God was upon him. His was not self-confidence, but God-confidence. He recognized that it was God who had brought these things to pass because he had evidence of God answering his prayer. Two characteristics of overcomers are firm persuasion and unshakable confidence. Now, if you look at our world today, where does the world find that? Where do they find firm persuasion and unshakable confidence? What does the world place its trust in? Well, some of them place their trust, as oddly as it may seem, in a crystal. Some of them place their confidence in a horoscope. But, of course, the only real confidence is in the God of heaven. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3.20. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that is in work within us. So the book of Nehemiah is the story of a man meeting and overcoming great challenges. We've already seen how he met the challenge of persuading King Artaxerxes to send him to Jerusalem. It was difficult because Persian kings could, easily, could not easily be persuaded to do anything because in this day the king would have to reverse some previously established policy. But you have to admire the way that Nehemiah meet these challenges. When faced with financial needs, he asked the king for help. When he was afraid, he said, Lord, give me the words to say. He was a man of faith. Yet he was careful to to balance his faith with realism. He didn't have to have a detailed game plan in his hands, but he thought through the expected difficulty, and he was a man of unshakable courage. Preparing requires planning. Fourth, preparing for a difficult task requires pressing on. 
Verse number 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one. And I think this next phrase is very important. I, I'd invite you to underline in your Bible. I underlined it in mine. What my God had put in my heart to do. What my God had put in my heart to do. At Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. And so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. He recognized patience, prayer, planning are all great, but without carry through, they will not accomplish a difficult task. Having seized the critical moment and entered the open door that God set before him, Nehemiah made a very long, hard trip, requiring perhaps as much as three months to make the trip from the palace of Artaxerxes back to Jerusalem. He now honestly faces the full reality of his problem. Now, Nehemiah had been successful in meeting the first challenges, but now he was in Jerusalem and he had a second group of challenges as well. The rebuilding of the walls was almost an insurmountable problem for several reasons. First of all, the sheer enormity of the task, the destruction was so great. The stones were so massive and it was so completely destroyed that it was almost worse than starting at the beginning. If you've ever remodeled something, you understand that sometimes it's harder to remodel than it is to just start anew. He had the same problem. Secondly, there is the problem of discouragement. Not only was the task overwhelming, but it had been attempted before unsuccessfully. Ezra uh, had led such an attempt in Ezra chapter 4, and they had failed, which meant he was bucking a history of defeat. And third, complacency. After all, things had been the way they were for years. One can become accustomed to the way things are and take it for granted that they cannot be changed. Christians still face the same obstacles as they attempt any new conquest for the Lord. Some say the job is too big. Others will say we tried that before and it didn't work. Still others will say, well, don't rock the boat. Things are going pretty well. Why don't we just be satisfied? So preparing requires us to press on. And fifth, preparing for a difficult task requires participation. And first we see the challenge that was given in verses 16 and 17. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done and not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer be 
a reproach. Just as David said, so we see in Nehemiah, you remember David saying to his brother, is there not a cause? That's what Nehemiah is saying here. Consider the words that Nehemiah uses in these verses. In verse 17, notice the words, you see, we are in, come let us build. Nehemiah identified himself with the people and he identified the people with the need. So the challenge that was given, secondly, the cooperation that was received. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. So we began to think about, well, how, how can I apply this to myself? And how can we apply this to the work of God here? And the things that I'm going to share with you, I share knowing that you are the core of what happens in the church because you are the people um, who care. We have to, first of all, convey a positive attitude. We don't want to be a negative anchor that keeps bringing everybody else down when anything is uh, tried. We also want to be open and receptive to change. In the uh, movie Braveheart about Scotland's struggle for independence from the English at the turn of the 14th century, William Wallace had to persuade the Scottish nobles to discontinue their ties with the English and unite with the fragmented Scottish clans and mobilize them to fight, to fight Edward Longshanks, the most ruthless king ever, to rule in England. And they would be facing a superior, the superior army of England. The joint effort was the only chance the country had, but the nobles were often bribed by the English king until in the end usually selfish nobles themselves offered to unite behind Wallace. Hamish, Wallace's boyhood friend and loyal right-hand man and army captain, smelled a betrayal and he appealed to Wallace saying, it's a trap. Are you blind? Wallace said in reply, look at us. We've, we've got to try We can't do this alone. Joining the nobles is the only hope for our country. And then Wallace asked this very intriguing question. He says, do you know what happens if we don't take that chance? Hamish shouted in despair, what? And Wallace quietly but realistically answered his angry friend with one word. Nothing. Nothing. Change is usually slow, it's often difficult, but it is always inevitable. Albert Einstein said about change, thinking like we have is what got us where we are. It's not going to get us where we're going. The third thing is by being involved in the work. We need to find a need and meet it. Find a task 
and perform it. There's always needs in any church. We have to engage ourselves in the work. It's a challenge to just not just go to church, but be the church. The conflict that we should expect is found in verses 10 through 19. We hear of the opposition that Nehemiah faces in verse 10 when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And then again in verse 19, but when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So Nehemiah met two very troublesome enemies when he got there, Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat is a Hornite, that's a devotee of the pagan deity of Palestine. So it indicates that this man was a pagan. Tobiah was a citizen of Ammon, which was the country that we now call Jordan, whose capital, by the way, is Ammon. Ammon was one of the tribes that descended from Lot, the nephew of Abraham, thus related to Israel, but always an enemy of Israel. So this is the first appearance, uh, their first appearance in the book of Nehemiah of his enemies. This situation sounds very much like the normal Christian experience. I have always enjoyed this definition of a Christian. It says he is a Christian is one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. That is our lot. It is often God's way to let us face troublesome difficulties. Whenever anybody stands and says, I will arise and build something for God, Satan always replies, then I will arise and oppose. You can count on it. It's a necessary part of the process. God allows it, for it is good for us, to have opposition. The form of the opposition of Nehemiah's enemies is also prophetic of the struggles that we will see. First, it says they laughed and despised, or they mocked and ridiculed. That is usually the first weapon that our enemy employs. You may have felt it when you first become a Christian. You, your friends laughed at your desires to change. They may have ridiculed your religious convictions and resented uh, your implied criticism of their conduct. So first, the enemy openly mocked the Jews, ridiculing the efforts to rebuild the walls. We find in history that pioneers have often faced the laughter of the observers. The first American steamboat took 32 hours to go from New York to Albany. It's 157 miles, 32 hours. People laughed. The horse and buggy passed the early motor car as if it was standing still because it often was. People laughed. 
The first electric light bulb was so dim they had to use a gas light to see it. People laughed. The first airplane came down in 59 seconds. People laughed. They always laugh. Nehemiah could have dealt with the ridicule in several ways. He could have ignored it. We often do. Sometimes that's the right response. He could have debated and tried to convince those that opposed him, and that too can be appropriate at times. He could have tried to negotiate, come to terms with his his oppression and opposition, but he didn't do so. What began as laughter and ridicule, later Nehemiah's enemies began to threaten and slander him with charges of rebellion and disloyalty. If ridicule doesn't work, then the opposition stiffens. It becomes more open and unfriendly and threatening. It is the next level of resistance which those who seek to do a work for God will encounter. Verses 19 and 20. And I told them of the hand of my God which has been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so I answered to them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you will have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's primary motivation to his workers is you need to remember that this is God's work. We have to constantly remind ourselves that that what we're trying to achieve For the Lord Jesus is God's work, not our work. Sometimes we will have to change our direction. Sometimes we'll have to change our programs. And those things can become necessary. I was just reflecting on something last night. I don't know how many years we've been doing the Halloween alternative. 20-something years, maybe closer to 30 years. And when we first began doing that, we were the only ones doing that. And now it seems like everybody's doing that. You know, every church has something. The city itself has something. And we have to constantly evaluate the things. That we're doing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what we're doing. That's, <clears throat> that's good, and we, wanna, we want to provide that. But we have to continually evaluate and reflect and look upon those things that we're we're trying to achieve. And as my good pastor, <clears throat> friend, Brother Don Elmore says, sometimes we realize that we're sitting on a dead horse. What do you do with a dead horse? Well, you can keep beating it, but it's not going to do any better. His advice, dismount. Dismount. Sometimes we have to change. And so we want to be continually open to what the Lord would have us to do. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for these faithful who have come here tonight. I pray that in some way, something that they've heard might be an encouragement to them tonight. I pray that you'd use us for your honor and glory here in this place, that you would continue to give us a vision for what you would have us to achieve as 
parts of this community and reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus. Help us, Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.